Welcome to episode 8 of DDK Talks Esports. Today I will be talking with Valde and man, this was this was really cool. I've had him set in my sights, my podcast sites of guests to acquire for a while just because at the various events that we've shared and that I've where I've spoken to him, he has always come across as a very considered and thoughtful person and this is perfect for for a podcast format and you know i think it really delivered beyond my expectations so that's fun that's really is fantastic uh, we talk about his backstory a little bit you know how he got into being a professional player we talk about you know how he managed you know stepping up onto that professional scene he's like from a psychology perspective we talk in fact you know he brings up a little bit of social intelligence we talk about you know visualization we talk about you know it's just what it's been like playing under these different danish uh, organizations and you know finding a balance between the style of execution and the dynamic style and much more so if that sounds up your alley you're going to enjoy this conversation Uh, as someone that's uh, more of a new uh, professional, you know, you, you weren't a professional in 1.6 or some of the older iterations, but you came into CSGO and you, ca you came up pretty quickly initially. How how did that all sort of pan out? Were you working really hard for a very long time or what did it look like? I started playing Source or Condition Zero actually back in some 5 and 6 and I played like so many hours up until I guess 2012. So I actually reckon I could have become a, a pro in source but i just never like knew anyone or i never got the opportunity um and also obviously cs wasn't as big then uh, salary wise and and so on so so counter-strike was always something i just did on the side as a hobby uh yeah and then eventually i uh, i got to know glaive as some of you might know the in-game leader from astralis um so me and him actually met at a at a birthday party because uh, we had a mutual friend of mine and yeah i got in touch with him and then through him i actually got the chance to i guess try out for my first pro team which was uh, copenhagen wolves back in must have been in the middle of 2016 i guess so it's a few years ago now and uh yeah it all kicked off from wait there. wait so, so how did that conversation go exactly with with uh... no it, it oh yeah yeah Clef? yeah yeah, so um, I had a, a, f a friend who uh, from college who also played CS and he knew uh, Lucas Glaive. Uh, so me and him just like got to say hi to each other at a birthday party and he had no clue I was playing CS as well. So uh, we just ended up talking about it as you do. Um, and then we actually met when I uh, went to the military to to like draw a number to see if I should go into the military or not, as we do in Denmark. And uh, yeah, I actually randomly met him on the train station on the way there. And uh, I was like, hey, and are you still playing CS and stuff? And when we got home, he we added each other on Steam and we had each other on Facebook and stuff. And I think we actually just started playing pucks together on Facebook actually. Uh, and then when the time came when Copenhagen Wolves was about to do some rust changes uh, with the own lineup. It was uh, Glaive, Snappy and SMF, as far as I recall, who were back on Copenhagen Wolves back then. Uh, they ended up kicking Percy and Hunten, uh, two players who are a bit less known in Denmark. I guess everybody knows Hunten. Uh, but yeah, they, 
they got kicked and me and Mertz, who's playing for North, uh, along with me, actually, pretty funny. Uh, we ended up getting the chance and yeah, we were basically two newcomers without any experience whatsoever uh, on the pro scene. And yeah, that's that's a, a short, rough story of how it all went down. It sounds like a really cheesy movie script, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess. But that that is truly how it how it all was but obviously i already at the time had like 3000 hours in csgo or something so it wasn't like i was totally new to the game i mean uh, i'd playing been playing a lot of pucks and a, a few minor lands and land events in denmark but nothing of note so yeah but you know even still you know you said that you know you, it wasn't your focus to uh, it wasn't your focus to, to to be a professional, yet you somehow managed to no, to actually achieve that. So, in all those you know three thousand hours, like like you were just playing because you you know you love competition, or like what was the the draw for you? Uh, I guess I've always been a pretty competitive person, but no, I was actually just playing mostly for fun with friends, and I'd go to the occasional LAN event and. Uh, just playing a lot of matchmaking, face it and so on. But yeah, I never actually aimed to become a professional. So I just went to college and then when I got home, uh, whatever spare time I had left, I just played CS. And after college, I had a year off where I just basically played CS in my spare time. And then I went to the military for about six months. And when I was just about to to continue uh, furtherly into the military, I got this opportunity to join Copenhagen Wolves. And uh, yeah, I ended up quitting my job to to see if I could start a career in, in CSGO. And that was in, I quit my job in February, 2016. And by the time we came to like, it was April, May, uh, I think I just, had worked my way up a little bit to where people in Denmark at least started to know my name and maybe be a little on the lookout for me. So uh, I wouldn't say it was totally random, but I always think there needs to be a little bit luck involved before you become a pro player. Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, connections is you know, always one of those things yeah. and being in the right circles. Yeah, exactly. you, you need to have the, yeah, you need to have the right social skills. Like, uh, in my honest opinion, there's probably even thousands of players who has the, the, the skill ceiling to become a pro, but they don't know how to uh, handle themselves socially or yeah, just function on a pro team, I guess, because it requires so much more of you than just being able to uh, kill people in the game, I guess. So, yeah. Yeah, that was always the, sort of the, the paradox that I uh, like to talk about when it's, when you know you have someone who's aspiring to be really good and you kind of can't... You, 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 like, to get very good when you're young like you don't usually have enough experience or sort of know-how to sort of be a, like a pretty solid analyst of the game so you sort of judge everything by by kills and that's really how other people will judge you too so like you're you're thinking about kills all the time and you get into a pro team and all of a sudden it's, it's you're not you know it's you're not playing pug counter-strike anymore it's a really big difference but 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 to wind uh, things yeah. back just ever so slightly um because you're talking about sure. sort of effectively like i mean you mentioned like you know glaive you know snappy you know merce like the, you know this is um this danish team seems to be of course you know it's one of the most skilled it's credited to have uh, the best in-game leaders of any region you know we'll put together um because it likes the snappy yeah, glaive MSL sure. and so on and and uh how small is the danish scene really 
I guess the scene itself is is really big, uh, and that can also uh, I don't know the the exact reason as to why that is, but I just think we have a lot of dedicated people, and also in Denmark, uh, most families have uh, a decent amount of resources um, to put into their kids. So most young people in Denmark has their own computer and so on. So I don't know. It just seems natural that we produce all these talents and i don't think it's because we do anything magical or special uh so i don't know i've i've thought about it myself but i don't think i have like the golden answer um but i mean it when i joined copenhagen rules back then it wasn't as clear cut as that it wasn't like it was um uh, a, a mutual decision within the team uh, i've actually been told that when when Glaive mentioned my name, Snappy was like, who is this guy? I've never even heard of him. Uh, so I'm not going to play on a team with him. <laughs> but yeah, uh, and I can obviously understand that. I mean, I wouldn't have liked the idea if it was myself who was taking a guy that I've never even heard of before. So it was a big gamble, but obviously it turned out pretty well. Yeah, and you, and you, you mentioned, you know, to sort of like one of the reasons why you know, Snappy might, you know, because he doesn't know who you are and why he might not want to play with you is because of this, I think largely because of the social element, right? It's a really yeah. big deal. And people uh, like pundits, you know, they will complain that there's too much name value in professional Counter-Strike. You've got too many players you recycle just because it's the devil you know versus the devil you don't. And obviously, yeah. you know, this is one of the reasons um, that you're talking about uh, previously was, you know, sort of social intelligence, like how good you are socially. So um, is that something that you were just like very aware of that, you know, you, you had to think about how you were socially or is it something that just comes naturally to you? You just like look at the social environment and you're just an easygoing person. Or how do you, how do you look at that in professional Counter-Strike? I guess it's a, a bit of both. Uh, I think I'm a, a pretty... I can be, <laughs> I can probably also be annoying to be around, but I, I think like overall, I'm a, a, a pretty, pretty calm guy. And obviously I also knew that maybe in the beginning when you join a pro team, maybe you shouldn't be that outspoken or maybe you should withhold your own opinion a little bit. And the first few months when you're playing, I think it's just about listening, uh, like just taking on, on all the experience you can get. Try and listen to all the older guys who will give you advice. And when people are correcting mistakes on you, don't go into like defense mode. You need to be you need to be open, have an open mind, and be willing to accept some of the mistakes you made. And I think if you're willing to do that and if you're a guy who who's just calm and, and likable, I guess, I think it's gonna be so much more easy to you to to become a pro if that what you if that's what you want to do uh, so that was actually be my definitely be my main advice for upcoming players it's like obviously you need to grind and play all the hours you can but try and really think about how you behave because um, even nowadays when when i see people on, on danish forums uh, like dust 2 for example uh, it's like the danish version of hltv.org I see so many upcoming players write uh, stupid messages and already there, just from a message, I can almost judge a person uh, forever 
just of what they're writing, you know. Forever. So if we see some player, no, but but yeah, I, I know it's a, a bit black and white, obviously. But if if we see a player who's upcoming and we might even consider him for the team, if he's writing retarded messages on forums, we'll obviously be like, oh, maybe he's not the the person we're looking for. So I would just always uh, give the advice to just stay away from forums. Try and be like this likable person, you'll get so much further by just being a, a, a calm guy who who doesn't have all sorts of opinions about anything. So that would actually be my main advice. I love that you, you brought up the whole idea of social intelligence. I, I, I like to talk about it and it's just, it's just one of those things that people sort of take for granted. They sort of forget the social element. And, uh, you know, speaking of which, in, um, I mean, we'll be going into sort of the roles on, on North and talking more specifically about that later. But sure. obviously, you know, there's a reason why, let's say, you know, when you have, um, obviously, like not, not everyone's going to be like, you know, uh, you know Jordan... Uh, Gilbert, you know, nothing. Um, and, you know, he's such a likable and very positive character, just, you know, always, you know, lifts lifts the team. But but you can do the minimum. You can do the bare minimum well. And uh, it's going to have, a, sure. you know, good impacts just by being aware of other human beings. Um, yeah, so uh, moving, the, moving things uh, forward slightly, um, what do you, like, what is your sort of practice splits, as it were? You know, what is your approach to keeping yourself sharp um, at the professional level and not dropping off just you know mechanically and so on mm, I always think this discussion is really overrated because it is one of the main questions you always get as a pro is like how much inputs do you play how many hours of deathmatch do you play all these things and from what I can tell it's that is not what matters at all like when I became a pro all I was doing was just playing pucks like face it matchmaking and when I was playing these things, I just tried to take it as seriously as I could. So instead of just running around, running through every smoke, uh, try and actually do calculated decisions. And I mean, obviously you shouldn't play matchmaking like you play a major final, but you can still try and make uh, smart decisions or communicate well. And I think once you did this enough, it's just gonna, it just becomes a backbone that you can build upon and then when you put skill on top of uh, like be, being smart and being able to make decisions and communicate well, I think that's when you become a complete player. And that is actually when you're ready to join a pro team. Um, and obviously it's not uh, because you need to be 100% complete because no one is, and I definitely wasn't when I joined, but I think I had the bare minimum that I could then build upon and learn from the others. So. Yeah, that would probably just be my advice is basically to just play. Uh, and it sounds so, uh, yeah, it sounds so cliche, but I think cliches are there because they're true. Uh, so yeah, my main advice would just be to to play and try and have your uh, brain alongside you when you play instead of just running around. Right, so that's what I was going to ask you about. You know, you, you, you said... Um make a calculated play so obviously any sort of calculations that you're going to make are going to have to follow through on your sort of model of the theory of counter-strike so how do you like when you're making plays and so on like what are the things that you're thinking about how do you how do you make how, how do you be a smart player in counter-strike let's let's uh give you a horribly ambiguous question <laughs> um well first of all i would actually like to add that i think 
uh, being smart and uh, being able to uh, think a decision through in a split second is something that I don't think any people uh, have the ability and I'm not even sure it's something you can necessarily learn in the, in the, in the basic sense. And that is also why so few people are pros in the first place is because some people don't even have the, the capability to begin with and other people aren't even, even able to acquire the skill ceiling needed. So, um, so when you're trying to make a, a calculated decision, it's something that's just very intuitive to me. Uh, so even though I'm saying to you now that I have, that it's something you need to think about, in the moment, it's actually something you don't think about. It just comes naturally to you. And that all comes down to game sense. And game sense is built from thousands and thousands of hours played. Uh, so it all comes back to what I said in the beginning, and that is to just play as much as you can and try and learn from the mistakes you do along the way. Yeah, I, li I like that. I mean, uh, I, I actually would, um, in the past, I would always call that like learned intuition, where sort of like you yeah. put in so many hours and, and sort of the hours you've put in before sort of tend to lean you towards thinking, okay, these things are valuable in the way that I think about this. And so I'm going to be pushing myself more towards that. And as you say, like yeah, it requires active, you've got to be actively engaged mentally <laughs> to, yeah. to have, make that process work. Yeah, but it's actually really simple. Like, uh, once you play, let's say 3000 hours, you'll have been in this given situation and X amount of times. And every single time you've been in this given situation, you're going to learn from it. And, uh, in Counter-Strike, we obviously only have seven maps or only it's, it's a lot, but we have seven maps we play as pros. And once you played these seven maps thousands of times, you'll learn all the the micro mechanics that goes into the map so you start to learn all the smokes all the off angles you know everything so it just becomes so much easier when you play to do all these micro decisions because you know what your opponent is most likely to do you know what you need to do to make the optimal play and yeah then there's also things such as timing and stuff you cannot control but i think just trying to make the optimal decision will get you really far that's actually a cool point too, because I like the idea of knowledge in this sense, because you kind of can't, you can't have like a, an, an AWP duel against a really good AWPer if you don't have all the same knowledge that he has, because then you can't actually mind game the other guy and he, you know, he can't mind game you. And so in what's actually going to happen is he's just going to be able to exploit and leverage an, uh, an advantage of knowledge. But if the knowledge is evened out, then then things get really interesting. And that's what that's actually what makes it really interesting with AWPers in, in particular. But obviously, uh, you know, as you mentioned, this this really applies to absolutely everything. Um, but, you know, um, from, uh, you know, we talked about social intelligence. I like I like how you, uh, you're you describing um, sort of the overblown focus on like training mechanics. And to, to a large degree, I can, I can absolutely agree. And uh, so, that, so one thing that's left untouched here is is uh, psychology, um, and obviously, when you're stepping up to the professional level, one of the biggest differences, maybe even the biggest difference, is that you have, um, as well as all the team dynamics and social dynamics, you have this huge pressure on you. You're on a stage, and you got the pressure of sponsors, pressure, you know, internally. Now you've decided, you made this conscious 
choice for it to be your identity to be a professional player so if you don't perform as you expect to perform then you're going to feel like shit and that's something that i think a lot of people who have never been a professional player don't really understand how awful that feels <laughs> so uh you know, yeah it's, it's a lot of stuff horrible. you're going to manage so so you know how did you deal with all of this kind of all of this stuff and what were the hardest challenges there for you and what are your practices um i would say that being nervous and being able to play on a stage is something that comes in large with experience. Uh, I remember my first international tournament so vividly. It was DreamHack Summer 2016, and I was playing stand-in for SK because Magis, who plays for Astralis now, had exams. So I got the chance to play stand-in, and in the first game, we played uh, the Brazilian lineup from Immortals, and I actually ended up top fragging, and I don't know, uh, it was really strange because I was like so nervous and I was sweating all over the place when I lifted my hand from the mouse. You couldn't even, like the, the mouse was all wet. Uh, it was like it went into the shower, you know? And it was so strange because I had so much pressure in that game that it actually ended up helping me because I actually almost didn't realize I was playing on a stage because I was just so focused on the game and doing the right things. Uh, that it actually ended up working um, and I ended up being the man of the match and we moved on to the to the next best of one where we ended up losing and then we had to play a best of three again the next day versus Immortals again and it was like the the pressure hit me with like a backlash from the day before because in this best of three I had a mixture of overconfidence and nervousness that just affected my game to a level where I'd never tried anything like it. So I ended up playing my one of my worst best of threes ever the next day. Uh, and I just remember being, uh, I don't know how to say, but I actually ended up being kind of happy about it because on one hand, I had the best debut I could ever wish for but then it ended up being really lousy and already there you got a feeling for how much pressure there really is at the top level uh, and i wasn't even close to being at the top level back then um, so throughout the years you just start to thrive in the environment i guess and still to this day i still become really nervous i still become sweaty in my hands when i'm in a clutch situation but now I'm just able to handle it better. And I know within myself that if I want to make a play or make a decision, I'm going to make this decision because I know it's the right play and I'm not going to let the nervousness or pressure get to me. So whereas before when I was a new player, I would think like, oh, I can't do this play now. Like it's probably not a good idea or, oh, he probably knows I'm going to come right here. Or instead I'm just, confident in the decisions I make and I try to like replay uh, my decision in the in my head just before I make it and I don't know I just go with it it's really interesting <laughs> that's that's the best uh, it's it's I always tell my coach like before a game I actually don't like to sit down for like 40 minutes straight and just play in butts I would much rather just sit uh, for example if I know what map we're gonna play I'm just going to sit and try and visualize the game. So I'm trying, I try to visualize executes. Uh, I know what the other team likes to do. So I try and visualize the situations I'm going to get into. And 
I don't know, just try and micromanage every single decision. And it always ends up helping me when we get into the actual game because because I replayed these situations in my head before the game. Then once I get into the actual situation when we're live during the match, it just, I don't know, it just helps me in the end, I guess. So that's one of the few things I do that can actually impact my game in a positive way. I Yeah, that's, that's really cool, actually. I mean... Um... Do, do you think that uh, the reason why you had such a terrible performance was just, uh, you know, after the, the great debut was just because you put like, you, you created an enormous expectation. Uh, like a, It's like this weird sort yeah. of positive follow-up pressure where it's like, oh my God, if I actually have the same performance in this best of three, everyone is going to be, like, I'm going to be like the hottest property yeah. in the whole game. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I couldn't have said it better myself. And I just remember taking every single aim jewel and I was losing all of them and... I don't know, it, it was just so unlike me, and uh, I just think it created a, a deep respect within me for all the other pro players, because now I got a taste myself at, of how it was to, to, to play on the big stage, and I mean, DreamHack Summer isn't even one of the biggest tournaments. I think there was only a few thousand people watching, but but yeah, uh, that, that was a, a fun learning experience. It, it's such i find it to be so, so interesting because also you know in your in your debut game where you played very well you know, why is it do you think that you played very well there but there will be some players who didn't play so well because you, you did of course you know you and you know other players in that position who have a really bad debut which is more common i would say uh on on lan um that, like that, that's you're both coming from not the nothing to lose position so so yeah. why why did it affect you like positively and why does it affect some people why does why is it harder for some people do you think I think a lot of it comes down to personality. Uh, I think a lot of players will crumble under the pressure before they even get to the situation where they can fail. So already before the game starts, you already know you're going to have a bad game. And it's a really weird feeling because it also goes the other way around. Like even nowadays, sometimes when I sit down and we're about to head into a game, I can just feel that I'm going to have a good game. And it's something I've actually never really uh, gotten to to learn how to control or how to consistently do it. But I think other pro players will actually tell you the same. And it's just this feeling you have, like when you touch the keyboard and the mouse, I, I just know I'm going to have a good game or like a good best of three. And it's such a weird feeling because I'm not even able to describe how it is. But I don't know. It's just sometimes you just know you, you're going to have a good game. And... Yeah, it's it's actually something I would like to to hear other people's opinion on because it's something I've felt myself and I've tried and talked to my teammates about it and they'll tell you the same thing. Like some days you're just on point and you can just feel it even before the game starts and other days you just know it's going to be a, a, a shitty day because your decision making or aim or whatever affects you is not on point. Maybe Maybe it's just that life is really complicated <laughs> because because um, I, I, I kind of understand what you mean in a sense like for, for example um there's you know this there's there's a saying that you know the, the game is not one on the day of the game the game is one during the the practice you know the hours and hours of practice the days and yeah. nights and weeks before um so so f f from one perspective you know it's it's it is just about like everything is already there. Like you already have everything ready to, to, 
deliver the crazy performance. But but also at the same time, Counter Strike does have a lot of variables. Um, but I suppose I suppose there's a lot of things that we pick up on. Um, you know, our subconscious mind is able to pick up on uh, that we consciously are not able to really see. Um, and and that's uh, that's like another very interesting topic. But but uh, this is awesome actually. You're you're, a, you're, <laughs> you're actually talking and exploring you know the the ideas. And I can again like tell that you know these are things that you think about because um, I, I plan that you know I always plan for the for the guests to maybe not um, have you know a huge you know a great response or, or a great deal to articulate. Um, so uh, there are a few things I want to cover. And, and and one thing you know talking about your debut and talking about you know you being a newer player you know that people were raving about was actually your utility usage and utility usage is definitely something that um it might be that people have a weird idea about it to say that some players are really good at it and some players are not because obviously you're a part of a unit so like what is like what what, yeah. what is your opinion on that first initial perception of you because that at least was what was on my radar i was like valde a guy that really is a smart player and, and approaches the game from a utility perspective very efficiently um I can remember all the way back to when I started playing CSGO, utility is always something I had an emphasis on. I remember whenever I had some, some spare time or some leftover time before I went into a puck or whatever, I'd just go into an empty server, make my own server, and I would just sit and throw smokes and flashes all around the map. And I don't know, it's it's just something that I very quickly realized that this is something that can give you a, a huge edge in the game. Because uh, if you're able to come up with a, a new one-way smoke, uh, a cheeky flashbang you can use on a bomb side you're holding, it's going to net you easy kills, but it's also going to create an aura of respect around you, I guess. Um, because the other team or players know that if they attack your bomb side, they know that they're going to have good utility thrown at them. And that forces them to use more of their own utility. And also, it forces them to maybe do contact plays to avoid signaling that they're coming. So it's actually something that can like indirectly affect the, the other team um, and also create space for yourself. So, so yeah, if you... If you're an upcoming player, utility is also something that's really underrated, I think. And it's also underrated on the pro scene because you've seen recently, for example, Astralis has tried to use utility in a, a different manner that I wouldn't say no other team has done before them, but they at least try to implement it more in their own game now. And as you can see, it's really working out great because, yeah, it's so underrated. Yeah, that's actually something that um, I, I want to talk about, Astralis, in a, in a little bit. Um, I, I actually think that, you know, the way that you, you talk about this stuff, you know, it's all very, very linked. I think people listening to this will be able to get a pretty good perspective of sort of who you are and the way you think. Just because, for example, like, you know, when you're when you're talking about, you know, that you don't rate, um, you know, putting so much emphasis on mechanics and so on and so forth. And a lot of the stuff that you do is around decision making. To me, it's, it sort of suggests that, like, your sort of reward mechanisms are different to most people when it comes to you know playing video games like this because a lot of people one of the reasons why you know doing deathmatch and and going on aim bots is fun and stuff is because it feels really good to hit headshots and so that's like one of the most gratifying things about the game and you know for you it, it really seems like something that's more gratifying is like winning the match and as opposed to really anything else do you think that's like a fair assessment 
Yeah, I think it's a pretty fair assessment. And uh, it's not because I have bad aim or I don't focus on my aim at all. It's just that I put just as much focus on learning utility and uh, improving my game sense. And I think also something that also helped me throughout the years was just watching replays of the games. So uh, not necessarily demos, because demos to me is actually downloading the demo and go into every single little detail. And that's not what I do. I just watch a replay of the stream as, as though I was a, a random viewer. And I just look at the game from a bird perspective and trying to see like, okay, what is the other team doing? Uh, can I steal some of their stuff? Like, are they doing some smart, clever moves I can implement on my own team? Uh, how is this player playing a position that I'm playing uh, on my own team? Uh, is he trying something new that I can also try out? Is like, that is basically what I get out of watching a replay uh, from a stream. So I've always found it really rewarding to, to watch replays because you can see the, the mistakes you do, but you can also see more importantly, what, what's actually working for you. And that is also something that's underrated that People think you need to watch a demo only to fix mistakes. Uh, no, that is absolutely not true. You also need to look at your replays and demos to see what you're actually doing good, because then you need to keep on doing that and exploit it uh, as much as you can. So that is also a, a really important advice I want to pass on. Yeah, and actually one thing I wanted to pick up on earlier was, you know, your, again, like it's one of those things, like there are certain terms which I, maybe people think about these things, but the terms don't get thrown around enough and, and you, you know, you use visualization and that's a really big one. Uh, visualization is, is like, you know, if you talk to any sports psychologist or if you look in, at, at the field in any way, or like, even if to me, like it's just a natural extension in, in the game, for example, if you have good crosshair placement, crosshair placement, half of it is about visualizing the situation. Uh, and so, yeah, exactly. and so uh, like, uh, but, but you're saying that, you know, you know, you actually sit down, and by the way, the, my, my my most I don't know if you've seen this movie, but my most famous memory of 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 this in like pop culture is of like visualization for an athlete is is Cool Runnings. Have you seen that movie, the Disney movie Cool Runnings? Yeah. Oh no, sadly okay, not. But uh, now, now that you mention it, I'm gonna have to watch it. <laughs> there's, there's just this like funny scene where they're like, because it's all about you know bobsleds, and and so they're in like a bathtub, just like going yeah. the right to left, trying to like visualize like running through the course. Um, but uh, mm -hmm. but yeah, no. So so that's that's kind of what you explained that you did, and I don't think there's many people that kind of do it to that extent, or would it, or I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would I would assume that you know 95% plus of pro players are. are, are doing deathmatch instead of you know visualization exercises and so on and so forth so so like what like what is can you explain to me like your you know your relationship with this like when was the first sort of uh, where was the first spot where you realized this is something that's important that i really need to focus on and and these are the ways i'm going to do it um yeah it's actually a, a really good and curious funny question because i think it's something that other people do they just do it without them like thinking about it or knowing it. And I think myself that I've always done it, uh, where it really became clear to me that it was something I needed to keep on doing and put emphasis on was actually during uh, Katowice this year, because uh, before we played one of our, it was, I think it was the first group stage game against NIP at Katowice this year. Uh, I was sitting with one of my teammates up where you could just watch uh, watch the streams. 
in the in the player area, and the the rest of us of our team was down playing deathmatch before the the game, and it was about twenty minutes to the game. And after this game, we had a, a team talk, and our coach Ave told us that it seemed like we were a bit uh, disconnected from each other, and before the game, so he mentioned that like. Uh, oh, Valde and MSLU just watching TV before the game, uh, watching stream where you should have been playing aimbots or whatever, and the rest of you sat down playing aimbots. So he he wanted us to become more organized before the game, and I actually told him that the reason why I wasn't, because then I realized that it was something that I needed to do. Like my optimal preparation is not playing aimbots for 30 minutes before the game. What I like to do is just sit down, watch the the other games that's going on, and yeah, just slowly starting to to visualize and get a sense of what our game is gonna be like. And once I said that, he was like, "Ah, now I understand why you're always walking around doing random stuff before the game." Um, so yeah, that's actually the first time where I told someone else uh, why I, I, I'm never like. Uh, playing deathmatch or playing aimbots before a game, um, because this is what helps me and helps me perform how I want to. Uh, so yeah, that's actually pretty interesting. I have to say that I'm pretty similar to you. If, if I like, uh, for me, I always when I was about to play like a land game or something, I, I would always feel like really. It would make me feel more nervous. It would it'd, like build more anticipation if I'm just like there shooting, yeah. like. Because I'm like doing this activity that's kind of mindless in a way. So like it allows my like conscious brain to sort of just like wander off into like all these sort of thoughts that will really create more risk for me to sort of get in my own head, as they say, which is the worst thing ever if you want to perform well. So, so yes, yeah, it's, yeah. uh, it's a really, Definitely. really cool discussion. Um, so let's, uh, let's move on to like you know, more about you know you the team and and sort of uh, got some questions on the danish scene and stuff as well um so in in a perfect world in a perfect world what is what would be like your f- absolute you know favorite way to you know play the game like your role like you know how you how you would approach um you know a map as a player like it, it, you know is is that a good question or is any question about roles a bad question no, I think it's a, a really good question. Uh, do you mean roles as in like, do you need to put a name on it? Like I would rather be a lurker or entry Um, or... You don't necessarily have to put a name on it, but sort of just sort okay. of the ways that you feel like you are the strongest in the server. Yeah. Um, I would say that I'm most suited to being put into two different positions. The first one is somewhere where I have to take a lot of responsibility uh, because that's what I like. I enjoy taking responsibility and I enjoy having pressure on myself to perform and make a good call. So if I'm being put in our, uh, like, like for example, our default, I need to be in the middle of it so I can give my input and offer my utility. And the other one is being an aggressive lurker. So I'm not the type of lurker who'll just sit still and just listen for footsteps and just give information like a robot. I'll try and be more proactive, like to try and bait out the the utility from the other team. I'll try and make uh, make little plays to 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 see if I can lure them out or 
do a, a little fake before the rest of my team doesn't execute on the upper side of the map. So I definitely say to to be an aggressive lurker or to be in the middle of the of the heat, so to speak. Uh, it's definitely the two positions where I thrive the most, I think, on T side at least. I can definitely see that. I think um, any any player that's like really mentally active, I, I just I, the aggression. It's actually it was something that's always fun to me when I like there was this moment when I was like when when I was like a, a a young player like many 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 years ago and and I was and I was <laughs> I was really into like being aggressive and you know it's my favorite way to play the game and you know I had like I had like yeah. great mechanics and stuff. But then but then uh, like one day I had this revelation. I was like I was like wow, actually being aggressive is actually only suited in reality to some of the smartest like the most game smart players possible like because you're going to take yourself through so many more split second decisions and there's so much more decision making in that sense than any other perspective so and also like you yeah. said you know you also you're saying that you know the, the, the lurker role as well like that's so cool as well because you know you have to piece together so much of the of, of what's going on that you know your team can't necessarily see and it's so timing based and so on I, that role yep. is very fascinating to me but speak Speaking Same. of um, another uh, other roles, you know, like in-game leading, for example, what, what's it been like playing under Snappy, you know, under Heroic originally, and then you know moving into North with MSL? Like, what, do, like, how has how has the leadership styles um, felt for you? Mm, I would say playing in Heroic was an overall great experience. I got to play with so many people that I've looked up to, and I'm proud to call myself teammates or at least former teammates uh, with these people um, but playing under snappy specifically was very up and down i'd say uh, what people need to keep in mind is that snappy actually wasn't even an in-game leader when he started out playing csgo it is never something he wanted to do it was something he was pretty much forced to do when the when the coaching rule came by uh, because in the original heroic lineup, we had in mind that we needed a coach who'd be able to uh, call full time for us, like so many other teams did, by the way, at the time. And what ended up happening was that the coach we had calling for us didn't end up working out at all. And also the coaching rule came, so that pretty much forced our hand into making one of us the the in-game leader and freeze and muddy was pretty much out of the question because of the roles they had on the team and also muddy is swedish so his danish wasn't perfect but it was definitely understandable like he's really good at danish and glaive didn't want to do the in-game leading because he wanted to focus on his individual game and showing people that he was more than just an in-game leader and that basically only left the task up to me and Snappy. And obviously I was also pretty much out of the question because I was still very much a newcomer back then. So Snappy being a bit older than the rest of us and more experienced made it somewhat natural to him to try and take up the role. And yeah, we, we just went with the flow and the first few months when he was calling was going great. We had really good results, both online and offline. And it wasn't until we lost Glaive to Astralis that I think we started to have issues in regards to calling. But those obviously weren't only Snappy's fault. It was very much the team just not working together properly. and 
yeah, not suiting each other's play style or personality as we did in the beginning when we had Leif back what was then. The, what was so, the biggest lesson from heroic, the heroic experience? The biggest lesson is probably that you cannot be an execute only, because I wouldn't even say we were execute heavy. I would almost say we were execute only based team. That is not really a viable play style, I think, against the top teams. You need to be able to have defaults working and you need to be able to make mid-round calls and you also need to not put every single responsibility onto the in-game leader like you need to have some sort of secondary caller who can help the in-game leader out because obviously the in-game leader cannot see the entire map all the time and he cannot be everywhere at once so i think all the top teams today if you look at the top five are teams who's really good at running defaults and making mid-round calls and then on top of that they'll have good strategies obviously so they're much more complete than we were in heroic and so then you know moving moving away from heroic you know into uh well under msl um you know what have things been like in that sense because you know one of the criticisms of north has, has been um in that north is you know are quite reliant on the set pieces on the executions and so on and so forth so so you know where do, where do you stand on that and and uh what do you think needs to like what, what are you guys working on uh, what do you think is the the most important thing to work on right now as well i think we're definitely still an execute heavy team which is fine i think you can easily have success being an execute heavy team but i think what we focus on the most now is actually making good defaults work and it sounds a bit silly because everyone just thinks to themselves, oh, running a default is just everyone goes to the spot, then you see what the other enemy team is doing, then you take map control, and then you, you can try them and, and set up for an execute in the end. But that is not really how a default works. Like, a default needs to be perfectly balanced. Like, you need to have all your flashes set in place. You need to uh, know the running patterns of every single one of your teammates you need to know what reactionary play you need to do if the other team smokes uh, throws a smoke here or throws a flash here then you need to be able to be reactionary and that is something we're working on at the moment is trying to make even better defaults and if we're out of ideas the default it is what's gonna save us in the end so that is actually one of our main focus points right now no, that's, that sounds awesome. Like, you know, establishing those sort of protocols around the defaults, definitely I could see that being really, really beneficial um, for you guys. And, you know, and what, you know, what are your general thoughts then between, like, in, in striking that balance? Is, is there a perfect balance between the execution style and the loose, dynamic, more mid-roundy type of style? Or as you say, like, is... Like you seem pretty content that you know we can we can have a heavy execution based on. I actually I actually personally agree with you. I think I think it requires a lot more hard work um, than than the the alternative. But definitely I think that it's it's doable. But if we look at you know Astralis as a, as an example right now, like how would you describe Astralis on on that spectrum? Are they balanced? Um, yeah, they obviously and it sounds again so cliche and so boring, but. They obviously found the perfect mixture between being execute heavy and being loose. And I think when you have a team that's as good as Astralis, uh, it's very beneficial to them to, on one hand, give each player the freedom they need to be able to make plays. But when the plays are not working or if people's individual uh, skill on the day is failing a bit, 
you need to be able to fall back and rely on something and that is going to be your default and your team play for example and that is probably what sets Astralis apart from most teams right now is definitely their team play uh, their coordination and their utility usage so you know the utility usage is something you mentioned earlier and I sort of uh, tabled it until we got to this point of the, of the uh, discussion so can you like go into as much depth as you feel is necessary on sort of describing you know what they've been doing to push the envelope when it comes to utility usage uh i think it's just their coordinated utility usage so one player can only do as much with his utility as possible but when you combine five players all of a sudden you have so many more opportunities so if you start to do triple nade stacks or if one player throws his utility so it forces the other team or the other player to rotate into a specific position. It's much more easy to predict the game and predict a setup. So typically what I see Astralis being good at is when they get a certain kill or they force a specific player away from a position, they can almost like instantly tell what kind of setup the other team is doing. And that uh basically puts Glaive into a really good position because then he can make the optimal call out from the information they currently have. And I think when that happens, you end up winning the games more often than not. And as you're seeing now, Astralis is pretty much totally dominant. And I don't think any team stands a chance right now um, if they can keep this form up. I was about to say, you know, what 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 does it take to beat them? Is it just be are they, are they actually playing like a version of Counter Strike where it's it's you just have to be doing what they like they are doing what is optimal. You just have to somehow do that with greater consistency, or like what 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 does it take? Um, I mean, first of all, I would like to say that I don't think Astralis is actually doing anything unheard of. They're just doing it. Um, also, when we practice against them, it seems like they're taking practice very serious and they actually have a purpose with practice. So they don't just practice to practice. Um, and that is also something that's really important. So what it takes to beat them is obviously team play that's on par with them. And that is actually the, the, the main thing I would say. And I think that goes without saying as well is if you're not able to match the skill level, already you can stop talking about team play because if you don't have the individual level, you'll already have lost the game. So you need to be on top of your game and totally on point, all five of you, if you want to beat Astralis. And then on top of that, you also need to have a perfect day team play wise uh, and calling wise, if you want to beat them. Jesus. <laughs> so um, you said, um, you know, or you insinuated that, you know, that there are some teams out there that, you know, they practice to practice almost like, you know, clock in, clock out. Is, is that, is that, um, is that a very widespread thing? Is that, does that speak to issues with uh, schedules or motivation problems or, you know, why do you think that's the case? Not necessarily. I just think it's something that happens without most people realizing it. And we ourselves can also be guilty of that sometimes. I think it's um, sometimes you just sit in practice and you play it all 30 rounds and you think to yourself sometimes like, okay, what were we really practicing this time? Uh, sometimes you just end up playing 
and yeah, I guess what end up happening is you're just eventually robots um, who doesn't come up with new stuff. And if you're not being innovative all the time and trying to get on top of your own game all the time, you're gonna, I think you're gonna be a fading team in the long run. Right. Okay. There's, <laughs> there's, um, there's so much that I want to ask you. I'm gonna to have to definitely get you and get you on again at some point. But uh, to, I don't. I want to be respectful of your time. And you know, one thing um, I would like to ask you about quickly as like a finishing thought. It's uh, it's a bit of a digression, sure. but um, one of the things that you know you've been speaking about and and you know we've been sort of addressing is really how difficult it is to be consistently good and, and at the top level, and also how how much there is going on that is unseen. Do you think that? Do you, do you, like given the sort of the clear constraints that you know let's say the broadcast the, let's say the talent are under uh, in the broadcast team like with time and and so on and so forth do you think that you get a, a like a decently fair representation from the the talent in the industry or do you feel like there there is some things to be improved on and if so what would that look like um like uh as to what can i get the the question yeah so do you feel like fairly represented when you hear like talent talking about your team and and, and performances of players and so on and so forth yeah um on one hand no and on one hand yes because when talent talk about us or when fans do for that matter they can only look at the results because they're obviously not a part of our everyday life. They don't listen to our team speak. They're not with us when we practice. They don't see the hard work that goes on behind the scene. Um, but I would say that it's fair as much as in the end results is what you're judged upon. And our results until recently has definitely not been optimal or what we expected from ourselves. Um, and personally, personally, I can also say that I myself has been slacking, definitely. Uh, I don't think I've put as many hours into the game as I could have or should have, for that matter. Um, and that is something I'm trying to, to, to work on. Um, I've also been having a, a, a turbulent six months where I've moved into a new apartment and all these things that has prevented me a little bit from playing as much as I wanted or as much as I used to do. And I think if you want to become a, a consistent top five team in the world, as we're aiming for, you need to at least play uh, the hours and then some if you want to get up to where it's fun, you know? So I think playing in like just just playing in itself is something that I myself and probably also some of my teammates have been slacking on a little bit. And yeah, there's no room for slack if you want to, for example, acquire a legend spot at the majors. So I'm going to play as much as I can and I'm going to try as hard as I ever did to be in top shape for this summer because we have so many important tournaments coming up and hopefully we can really show the north that people knew from last year uh this summer so we're gonna try our hardest to get there awesome that's good to hear um 
I I love watching you guys, and uh, I wish I wish all the success. I think there's so much potential. I think everyone sees it. I think any frustration that ever sort of befalls onto North from any critics of any kind is just because mm -hmm. everyone looks at looks at your team and they're like, this team is is going to do some big things, but just waiting for yeah. it to happen. Um, yeah. the way that you guys envisage it and hopefully you'll be at the major but uh, thank you so much hopefully. for taking the time to talk to me i actually i'm definitely going to be asking you again <laughs> so so uh, prepare no yourself worries. for that awesome all right ciao for now ciao another episode in the bag excellent stuff what a great guest valde very articulated considered thoughtful opinionated great combination Definitely had some good intuition about that one. Yeah, let's, uh, let's use this time as a time to compliment myself. That's so, so attractive. Anyway, moving forwards, if you, uh, if you enjoy this uh, podcast, remember that you can listen to it on a multitude of channels, as it were. It is, well, most recently available on Spotify now, which is awesome. I'm excited about that. It's uh, very cool. Oh, actually, now I'm on the topic of distribution platforms. So, um, yes, Spotify, that's a big win. Happy about that. We made it. We made it. Oh, feels good. But what doesn't feel good is the fact that iTunes doesn't like the OGG formats. And the OGG format compresses better and holds quality better. And that's amazing. But I did not realize that that would actually break the iTunes upload. There is a way I think that I can fix this. Uh, no guarantees just yet, but I'll be trying to make those older episodes available to the iTunes listeners. However, for anybody who is listening to any of the episodes, including this one in the future, it will there will be no issue in distribution. It will hit all the platforms. It will hit Spotify, iTunes, and hopefully all of the Android and iOS apps as well. If there is any platform that is not being served currently, please let me know. I had there are some that I do have to manually. Uh, fix with more details such as Stitcher and there's another one that I recently did um, and that is uh, now fixed as well I believe so we, we're getting there we're getting there and we'll soon hopefully be all the way there but we're, we're mostly there and I'll settle for that for right now so I'll catch you guys on the next one thanks for tuning in